because I remember when I felt uncomfortable in classes, when teachers made fun of me often without even trying to, because I was unprepared and the like. And I think that being a servant teacher is compatible with every kind of philosophy or ideology or pedagogical theory or whatever that really desires to treat the student as we would want to be treated. The Digital to Learn podcast is dedicated to exploring both what's new and what's good in the use of technology in teaching and learning. Our mission is to have the best minds sitting in front of our microphones, sharing evidence-based strategies for digital teaching and learning. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Thank you for joining us. And now, the Digital to Learn podcast. Welcome to the Digital to Learn podcast. I'm Mike Jones, and I'm here today with my co-host, Brad Garner. Welcome, Brad. Hey, Mike. I wonder if I could just throw in a quick joke here. Of course. Quentin is known for wearing bow ties on a kind of a regular basis. So I have a bow tie question. Why did the butter knife put on a bow tie? Any guesses? Oh, you rascal. Go for it. He (laughs) wanted to look sharp. Oh! Oh! <laughs> well, you just got to hear from our guest today, which is part two of this episode, Quentin Schultz. He is joining us to talk about a book that he's written and some experiences he has with servant teaching. So welcome to the podcast, Quentin. Wow, Mike, this is great to be here. Thanks to you and Brad and Tiffany, too, who helped set it up. I'm honored. Well, we are honored to have you join us. For our listeners today, this is part two of a two-part podcast. So if you haven't heard part one, please stop now. Go back and listen to part one. It'll give you some great context for what we'd be talking about further today. So without further ado, let's jump right back into the questions. So as you described this idea of being a servant teacher, I'm guessing at least that there are some members of the academy who would push back and say, that's not what we're here for. We're here to communicate knowledge and information. Has that been a response to this idea of servant teaching? Everywhere I go, Brad, uh, every school I go to, uh, everybody I talk with about it, this comes up. And it usually comes up along the lines of, well, you just sugarcoat things. You want to make things easy. You want to pay too much obeisance to what students want rather than what they need. And on and on it goes. And I get all of that. Absolutely get all of that. But for me, the question is, what maximizes learning? I'm interested in maximum learning and motivating students toward maximum learning. What works? So with, uh, for example, in the book, in one of the chapters, I talk about teaching what I call an info-rich course. There are some courses we teach that we simply have to cover a lot of information. It's the nature of it. It may be because of a subsequent course, you know, that will the, the students will have to use information from that course in or who knows what it is but what do we do there and so what i do is to create a syllabus that includes an extensive outline of every topic we're going to cover in the course single spaced seven to ten pages typically and then next to each of those topics i put in parentheses the page or pages in the text or textbooks of where that topic is covered and then as we go through these topics in the course we check them off 
And if I don't have time and I have to eliminate a topic, I tell them that. When we do reviews for exams, I say, okay, we're doing items, let's say 42 or 68 right now. Take a look at the outline. This is what we're doing. Here are the topics, any questions, comments, whatever. What I'm doing is I'm setting up the course in a way for students today to be able to stay on track with where we're at. I'm helping them along. Am I making it too easy? Well, some people could say that, but here's the other side of it. We know from the research that right now, traditional college-age students are suffering from low executive function. So anything I can do to help them learn executive function and demonstrate that for them along the way, I will do it. And does it make it easier for some students? Yes, it does. But it also helps them. So you're right, Brad, I do get that kind of response and I'm willing to accept that and consider whether or not I have gone overboard and I'm making it too easy. I love the outline approach because I think of many courses that I've taken, and I'm sure you have as well, where there's a 600-page textbook, and you kind of in a scavenger hunt as to what the instructor thinks is most important. Right. right. Because from those 600 pages, they're going to draw 50 multiple-choice questions. And if you happen to know what they are, you're in good shape, but otherwise, you're in trouble. Yeah, right. So as I told you before, I'm I'm kind of a troublemaker on these things. I got to the point in my teaching where I felt like I was doing well enough with these new things I was trying that, you know, I'm not going to worry about what other people think, but I will listen to what other teachers think along the way. And I have tried numerous things that my colleagues told me would be utter disasters that worked extremely well. Here's a t technology related example. Administration told me that I had two students in a class that I was starting that needed extra help. One had very high ADHD, and the other one was blind. And I thought to myself, okay, how can I best serve these students? And I thought, I'm going to figure something out. And I thought, I'm going to audio record all of my sessions. And I started audio recording each one, and I would put them up on the class learning management system. And other students told me, hey, I'm listening to those too. And pretty soon, I could see how many people were downloading and listening to these things, and it was high. And I thought, this is amazing. And yet my class attendance was spectacular. And my colleagues told me if I did that, students would stop coming to class. Well, the opposite happened. Students would listen to those. They would learn more. They would listen while they were driving to work or driving to school. They, and I was told by students that they were talking with other students about things when they re-listened. And I suddenly thought to myself, I'm going to start audio recording and then later in my life video recording all of my work and putting it up. And it's all supportive. And it doesn't lead to a situation where students are less engaged in spite of what my colleagues told me. Wow, that's amazing. I love that. So in the midst of that, we share with our colleagues an expectation that our students will learn. And so you have some folks saying to you, you're just sugarcoating the content. You're just trying to be liked, all those kind of things. So how do you know that your students are actually learning? Right. How do you know they're learning? What a great question. So now we get into this whole realm 
I mentioned the word purgatory before. We get into this whole realm of assessment. See now, assessment. How do we assess things? And So I am not a big fan of the way assessment is done in most schools because I think we're missing the boat. We're creating another layer of work where actually we could reduce the amount of work that we are doing as teachers and have the students learn more and assess at the same time. Now, I should just stop there and not answer that question, not say anything more on that, right? So one of the things you learn about good storytelling with students in an oral culture is you set them up. You begin a story and you don't finish it because anticipation is the glory of storytelling. You want to know how the story is going to turn out. And so I had a teacher when I was at the University of Illinois in basic economics, huge, I don't know, 600, 800 students in a class. And one day he came up to the front. You could hardly see it. He held up a newspaper. And the front of that newspaper was a picture of cattle farmers in Florida burning their cattle, bringing their cattle into huge groups, piling them on top of one another, throwing gasoline on and burning them up. And he said, look at this, they're burning their cattle. And students were half asleep around me. Some had their legs over the chair in front. And, and suddenly people were knocking each other with their elbows saying, hey, did, did you hear what he just said? They're burning, they're, they're burning their cows? What's going on in this world? They couldn't believe it. And he said, I'm going to tell you this class, why they're burning their cattle. And I never forgot that. I was, you know, just coming along and I hadn't even thought fully about being a teacher or anything yet. But so I just opened up this whole idea that assessment might be headed in the wrong direction. And there are ways that we can actually make it less work and improve the student learning and make it. And so here's what I'm going to share with you. As teachers, we have an opportunity to create what I call parallel assignments. So we go from one assignment to another assignment that is essentially the same assignment. And let's say we have three assignments that are parallel. Just for argument, let's say we have three short essays in a class and they have basically the same rubrics. We give out the assignment, we get the first paper back from a student. And we look at that, we grade it, and we have a sheet that has the rubrics on it. And on that sheet, and I do it with a word form, I just type it in real quickly. Here's the strength, here are the weaknesses in terms of the rubrics. Here's what you're doing well, now do it even better on the next one. You're rocking and rolling. Here's what you're not doing so well and what you need to attend to. When the student turns in the second essay, they have to include the first essay, my evaluation of the first essay with the rubrics, a short statement on how they have addressed the strengths and weaknesses from the first assignment in the second one, and then the assignment itself. And they turn that in. And then they do the same on the third one. Now, once I started doing this in my classes, you can't do it with all assignments. But once I started doing this, student grades rapidly went up. 
because I discovered that students living in a very busy world where they tend to hop from the next thing due to the next thing due, and they don't look back on previous assignments and learn from them, were now in a situation where they were learning from the previous assignment with my help, addressing it, getting better grades, and moving on and on. And not only that, but at the end of a term, I could document for every administrator how much that student had improved in terms of the rubrics in that kind of assignment in my class. And I can say, here are the examples, here are the evaluations, and not only that, the students did the work to improve. As I listen to that, I'm thinking about, again, hopefully a small portion of the faculty in higher education, but Typically, when a student doesn't do well in a course, gets a low grade, the response is, well, you just didn't work hard enough, or you just didn't care, or you didn't exert yourself. It's not my fault. It's your fault. Right. And what you're doing is giving them feedback that helps them improve their performance. Right. Yeah, and my approach is if they get a very low grade on the first assignment of any kind, now, exams are a little different, but on other kind of assignment, a project, presentation, who knows, a case study, kind of communication, lab setting, whatever it is, if it's real low, I don't give them a grade. I say, hey, talk to me about this, because I want to find out if they understood, we're back to communication and understanding. Did they understand the assignment? In most cases, they didn't. And so that also led me then to another practice that I highlight in the book, Servant Teaching, where I give students concrete examples of previous assignments. So when I have students that do really well on something, I will ask with their permission to take their name off, keep a copy of it, and then I can share it with future students. And funny story about this, when I first started teaching at Calvin College, now Calvin University, in 1982, I think it was, or 83, it's a Christian university. Okay, Christian university. Christians don't cheat, right? Well, that's like saying Christians don't sin. I mean, they're in the sin business, right? So at any rate, I'm in this class. And after I gave back the first exams, a student said to me when I was going over this exam, well, none of your exams were in the file system in the dorms. And I said, what? What? <laughs> And the student said to me, well, we keep all of the past exams from all of the teachers in the filing system in the dorms and pass it along from year to year. <laughs> I said, really? They said, yeah, well, I was new here. And of course I wasn't in the thing. And then I got to thinking about that and I thought, hey, this is a bonanza. This is an outright bonanza. If a student is willing to look at a previous exam, I'm going to give them past exams. Mm. So every semester, I give the students past exams and samples of past papers or case studies or whatever it is. And I say, now, this is what I, my expectations are. And then I say this, and I can also tell you that some of the questions on my exams will be repeats from some of these previous ones. Well, then the students on their own start getting together. Brad and Mike, I hope you're loving this. They get together and... Not all students, but most of them will get together. They'll create study groups. They'll go through the past exams together, try to figure out all the answers together. And they're preparing for the new exam, but they're also learning more. Mm. Yeah. I don't yeah. think learning has to be hard. 
<laughs> yeah. I think you just described another anomaly in higher education. That is, you give an examination, and let's say that I take your test, and I get a 90%. So all I really get back is that 90 in the grade book. And one thing I'm never really sure of is, which 10% that I get wrong? What were some of my misunderstandings about this content? Yeah. As you described, going over an exam in class is, again, an additional learning experience. It is. Yeah, as I say in the book, I will always spend the next class completely going over the exam. Now, next class, of course, assumes that I have it graded by the next class. And that's another topic I address in the book is how responsive are we as faculty? So I pre-schedule my semester out to include grading time after assignments will be coming in. And I say to the students, and I put on the syllabus, say on the first day of class, now I want you to know that normally I will have everything you submit back to you the next class or the subsequent class within two classes. Now that often depends on if it's a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, or Tuesday, Thursday, or once a week class or whatever. And... Um, so then I get it back to them in a timely fashion, so they remember it, and I go over every question, talk about every one in class, uh, how I determine the grading on each one, and then at the end of that class, I say this. I don't tell them this before they take the exam, but then I say this. Now, you can appeal any grade that I gave you on any of these questions, but here's how it's going to go. You're not going to walk up to me after class today and tell me you think you should get more credit. Maybe you should, but that's not how we're going to do it. We're going to do it in a way that's better for your learning and better for me as a teacher to know how I can improve my teaching. And this is the way it's going to work. You are going to type out for me a list of the numbers of the questions that you want me to reconsider your answers on and for each one, why you think you should get more credit. And maybe it's something I said in class, or maybe not. But you tell me why. What is it? And sometimes they will say something like, well, this is how I interpreted your question. And boy, oh boy, I didn't think that, that my question could be interpreted that way. But based on how the student interpreted it, I think I should give them full credit. I was the one that did not create shared understanding here because my question was not as good as it should have been. Or other times, uh, they, and, oh, and I also say to them, and you can also refer to pages in the text or to notes that you took in class or whatever. And so I would say typically for me, about 20% of the students on a given exam will appeal for extra credit on something. And probably over 50% of them will indeed get some of the extra credit. And the system really works well. And the students love it. And they see me as one of the most fair teachers. And all I'm doing is increasing the communication, the so-called feedback, and the common understanding about the grading process. I love it. Well, I think you've diffused a problem that, think about technology today. I could be sitting in your class with my phone, taking pictures of each page of your examination to pass those along to my friends. And faculty could say, that's horrible, that's terrible, that's cheating. But what you've done is capitalize on that behavior and use it to help students learn more effectively. Yeah. yeah. I love exactly. that. I had one college professor, I was in a, taking a project management class, and before every exam, 
they would do a last person standing exam review. And so everyone in the class that could would stand and they would go through every question on the test. If you got it right, you stayed standing. If you got it wrong, you sat down. The next person got the question. But at the end, after going through the whole exam, whoever was left standing didn't have to take the exam. <laughs> and so the next class would be the exam. So it was a way that that professor was giving us a full exam review. We were hearing the answers. And if you knew your stuff, you could basically, you know, clip out of the exam. It was fantastic. I loved it. it. Had made an impression on me. Wow, I never heard that one before. That is, it makes me wonder how many great pedagogical practices there are out there that have not been so widely shared. Because I think we don't do a good job. And I know you guys through the podcast are trying to improve this of sharing things with each other. Oh, by the way, also, I tell the students with all of my exams, if more than 50% of the class misses a, an answer, gets it wrong, so to speak, I throw it out. I assume the problem was me somewhere along the line. And then I give uh, the credit for those who got it right as extra credit on the exam. Oh, Love that. Great. Love that. That's really good. I like that. Our question about the most unexpected teaching practice, we kind of answered because that's been fantastic. But as an adjunct professor who doesn't always get the opportunity to write my courses, what advice would you give an adjunct teacher who's handed course content that they can't modify when it comes to like making those lists of learning objectives or content and how they could use the tools you're giving them here to still have those same skills as a teacher, as a servant teacher? What a great question, Mike. So let me say also that since I took early retirement to do what I'm doing with you guys and workshops and webinars and writing and all, I've had to think three books out in the last three years, uh, communication related. You know, I'm doing all this stuff, but I am also doing adjunct work. And I'm doing it voluntarily in order to keep my skin in the game, so to speak, to monitor what's going on with student culture mm -hmm. and to make sure that I know where students are at and how to be most effective, but also to learn how to work within the confines of adjuncting. So I've adjunct from undergraduate all the way up to doctoral level. And so many funny stories I could tell you would be worth another whole podcast of things that were imposed upon me by some powers that be somewhere who are making the decisions of what has to be done and the way it has to be taught in an adjunct class where it was it was a disaster that somebody never thought through the implications of what was going on and some of those had to do with technology but what I always discover is that within what I'm given, I can make adjustments on my end to vastly improve the course from the very simple template that I'm given. And most of the things in my book, Servant Teaching, are things that can be adapted. I think teaching is all about adapting to different situations and contexts, just like all good communication is. 
So most of what we've talked about in the podcasts here are, can be used. I mean, if I'm adjuncting in a course where I think I really need a solid, long outline on topics and all, I will put it together, even though it's not part of the official syllabus, and say, here, this is going to help. Or in some cases, what I'll do is begin each class with elements of the outline and put them up or share them online or whatever the best uh, technology or medium is, and then follow through with that. And I say, here's what we're going to cover. These are the points and so on, and here's where they're talked about in the book too. So I can do that as I go along. So my point, Mike, would be really most of what I call servant teaching is adaptable to different situations. And what's been interesting to me too is that I spent most of my life teaching in Christian higher education. And my textbook has a lot of examples from Christian higher education. But then I've been getting emails and some phone calls from people who are not in Christian higher education saying, do you know what? What you've got in here in this chapter is some of the best material on teaching I've ever run across. And yet you're saying you're doing this as a Christian. I don't quite get it. This is just plain good teaching. And so I have to say to them, you're absolutely right. What being a Christian does to me is to say, I need to be, first of all, about serving my students. That, that's how I see that. So Jesus at one point says, hey, if you're going to follow me, here's what it all comes down to. You've got to love God, but you've got to love your neighbor as yourself. It's about love. Love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, if our students are our neighbors, we've got to love our students as we would want to be loved or treat our students as we would want to be treated. And I think there is wisdom in that. There is great, great wisdom. And that's in other religious traditions as well. This golden rule to treat our students the way we would want to be treated if we were a student. And what happened with my background growing up with an alcoholic father, paranoid schizophrenic mother and very difficult circumstances is I think it actually gave me a deep empathy for students. Because I remember when I felt uncomfortable in classes, when teachers made fun of me, often without even trying to, because I was unprepared and the like. And I think that being a servant teacher is compatible with every kind of philosophy or ideology or pedagogical theory or whatever that really desires to treat the student as we would want to be treated. Love that. Love that. Well, Quint, one of the gifts that we give to our guests is the opportunity to wield the digital to learn magic wand. And what we have found is that when someone speaks a prediction for the future using the magic wand, it becomes reality. So we want to give you that opportunity today. What one thing would you change in higher education by using the digital to learn magic wand? <laughs> oh boy, Brad, you are a character. So, uh, you know, some of the things that I've done in class, some of the times I was most prepared for a class and I said, I am going to hit it out of the park on this one. Absolutely bombed. And other times I went into right. a class half-baked and it was great. And the students asked great questions, you know. So I'm a bit leery on this one. But he, here's <laughs> what I think right now, given 
my view of higher education and my traveling around to schools. If I could get some of the principles of servant teaching taught with very concrete, practical application to new teachers, there's the need with people who are getting into higher education at the beginning of their careers right now, before they get into patterns where they assume a lot of things that are untrue or they begin to get depressed themselves. There's a lot of anxiety and depression among teachers too. So that at that key point, if I could wave that wand and have them really hit the ground running and learn how to figure out what's working, what's not working, change what's not working, even do better with what is working and rock and roll, boy, I would do it at that point because it would save a lot of misery later in life. I think you point out another flaw of higher education, and that is, as you mentioned, most people going into higher ed do not have any teaching experience or training. And very often we just kind of throw them into the deep end and hope that they learn those good lessons you've just described, but unfortunately by trial and error. Right. Yeah, that's what it comes down to. And most of the time, I think what happens is we end up imitating some teachers that we had. Yes. And if those are really great teachers, that can be very helpful. Uh, But we all need help. And unfortunately, the faculty development programs at schools are underfunded. And when it comes to technology, wow, are they underfunded. I, I include a couple of chapters in my book, Servant Teaching, about technology because I think it's so doggone important. In fact, all of our teaching involves technology. The only question is whether or not it's more high touch or high tech or somewhere in between. We're all about technology. In fact, that word techne, which is often seen historically as skill or art, actually comes originally from the technology of the voice. Mm. The voice is technology, of course. And so we are all technologists as teachers. Outstanding. Well, Quentin, you have given us so much to think about. It seems like every time you open your mouth, a pearl of wisdom drops out. So we're going to have to go back and listen to this again and again and pick those pearls of wisdom up and reflect on them and see how we might apply them to our own teaching. So thank you for sharing your wisdom and expertise with us today. Absolutely. My honor. It's a joy to be here. And I hope that people who are interested will check out my book, Servant Teaching. We will certainly post resources on the webpage, directing people towards some of the things that you've done. Again, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you. And for our listening guests, this has been a two-part podcast with Dr. Quentin Schultz. Please listen to both pieces because I think you're going to find critical information in both parts. So you can find us on your favorite podcast platforms. Please like and share with other people you think would be interested in these topics. We'd love to have those conversations. You can always reach out to us at digital2learn at endwes.edu. That's I-N-D-W-E-S dot E-D-U. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks again, Quentin. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on Digital to Learn. If you enjoyed this podcast, there are three things we ask you to do. One, come back and join us again. Two, tell your friends about us. And three, give us a positive ranking on your favorite podcast platform. Digital to Learn is brought to you by the Center for Learning and Innovation at Indiana Wesleyan University. Embrace the future. 
always keep learning.